in every significant moment, whether it's celebratory or whether it is a deeply mournful moment, there is music. And it can speak things that words cannot. A melody is a message. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, we visit with a singer-songwriter who, though he has been releasing stellar work for over two decades, was not really on my radar until about a year ago. In fact, it took me hearing him play, literally in my own backyard, thanks to our friends at Porchlight Music, for me to really appreciate this guy's incredible songwriting and captivating performance skill. What a voice. And now, he has an album that features an incredible assemblage of talent, with players who have backed up T-Bone Burnett, Over the Rhine, Sam Phillips, and many others. Whether you are already a fan of Andy Ziff or not, I promise you he is someone you will be glad to have spent some time with. We'll talk about his journey so far, his amazing new album, How to Make a Paper Airplane, and more on the podcast today. I see each of your faces Twisting under my patience You never see what you need You're a stone A little bit later in the show, we've wrapped the jukebox up in black vinyl, covered it in mirrors, and put a big set of black shades on it as we get ready to listen back to U2's Octune Baby 30 years after its release. First, let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hello, I'm Chris, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast, which has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I can always expect John's warm voice and insightful questions to draw out the stories, wisdom, and faith of beloved and new to me musical artists. After every episode, I'm always listening with fresh ears to favorite albums or visiting new albums for the first time. It's just like when I used to visit the old True Tunes store in Wheaton, Illinois, but now I can visit every week with new episodes. True Tunes Patreon supporters support the show with monthly donations of $5, $10, or $20, which helps cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless WAV files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on True Tune swag, and more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. 
If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks and enjoy. Like I said, although I was somewhat aware of his name and had heard a few of his songs here and there, I wasn't really tracking with Andy Ziff's music until last year. I heard about his song No Virus on the Moon through a premiere of the video at Paste Music. That song knocked me out, and I added it to our weekly True Tune Spotify mix several times. Then our friends at Porchlight Music reached out to see if there was any way Andy could play at our house here in Nashville. We hadn't hosted a show since COVID hit and were eager to do something. We said yes and had a great night sponsored by Vision Trust. As I got to know Andy though, it was clear that we were cut from the same cloth. How had I missed this guy for so long? We had grown up listening to a bunch of the same artists and had both turned the fringes of the alternative God-haunted music world into our comfort zone. After hearing him play, however, I was blown away. I decided right then that he needed to be on the show. So now let's head into the virtual True Tunes interview suite with one of my favorite new artists, the 20-year veteran, Andy Ziff. There is no virus on the special suits will keep us safe we'll look back on the earth and say remember when andy zipf welcome to the true tunes podcast it is so good to see you again how are things in in your world these days how are you hanging in there i'm excited to finally have finished this this album that i've been working on for over three years and a lot of these songs lived inside my head or existed you know not a lot of people knew about them i mean they knew i was creating it you know i'd let people know i was i was working on something but there's some false starts in there and so it it just feels so good to to finally be finished and to be able to let the inside world into the outside you know and to begin the conversation let people inside and to engage with with people through these songs even though the the subject matter of some of the songs are not is not some of it is difficult um but i don't know it's just important to me to have to be honest about these things and you know i write songs to process life so to be able to now say how to make a paper airplane is is finished and I can see it in my Spotify for artists upcoming releases it's really gonna happen <laughs> you know it didn't plan it this way but yesterday my son and my wife were and I were at lunch with some friends and Aiden my son wanted to make some paper airplanes and he knows that daddy has made an album 
with a song about a paper airplane. And so he was like telling everybody, Daddy knows how to make paper airplanes. And so I was making, we made all kinds of, of, air, of paper airplanes. And um, my friend who I was with, he know, he knows about the record and he's heard a couple songs. And so he was like, I, there's, there's a lot going on there right now, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. When we were hanging out here at the house, I learned some things about you. And I just mm-hmm. can't believe that we hadn't become bosom buddies before now. Yes. So I, I'd like, I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that, that aren't familiar with. So can you kind of tell us your story? Because you're not a new artist, are you? No, I've, I've been at it for a minute. Um, so right out of high school, I joined a band out of, right out of high school. So I was about 18, 19. We got, you know, a record deal. Um, but it was a subsidiary of Goatee Records. Right. Um, I guess you could, you could call, you could call, it you know it was a, a modern worship band and I, you know I played lead guitar and I wrote a couple songs but it was a a place to start but it wasn't really what I hoped my ultimate destination would be and after a couple of years lead singer wanted to be a dad and not travel and so we we parted ways and that's when I recorded my first record I had already been writing some songs which ended up on my first record which was released on Modern vs Stereo in two thousand three. And that was called I Stole the Morning Sun. So this, How to Make a Paper Airplane is my 10th record. So I released some albums and EPs under my own name and then took the moniker The Coward's Choir, which actually ended up being a band. Tell me a little bit more about Coward's Choir. What was the vision for that? What was the the style and all of that stuff? Yeah, so in 2013, I released the first EP, Reunion, is the Coward's Choir, and honestly, it wasn't stylistically that much of a departure from what I'd done previously. It was, it was kind of attempt at providing a way for me to not necessarily only do the folk singer songwriter thing, but to branch out into some more to, to some more area stylistically. Not that I hadn't done some more rock-oriented stuff on my own. Uh, I put out a record in 2006 or seven called The Long Tail, which is pretty much kind of a blues-based rock album. But when I started The Coward's Choir, I'd already played with Adam Neubauer, drummer for actually some of your listeners will know Goaty Hook, great drummer. And Ryan Walker, another friend of mine, played bass and uh, sing harmony and keys. And then just, you know, few months later, I asked another drummer in D.C. and percussionist Ben Tufts to, to join us. And so Ben would play percussion and uh, vibraphone. I called them the rhythm mountain, you know, because that's what it felt like behind me, this mountain just rolling behind me. And so that was really fun, you know, to take these folk songs and just build them up to this um, crescendo. And then 2014, I think it was, we put out an EP with that lineup, the cool currency. And then just as, you know, things happen, life and, you know, band dynamics, you know, uh, things shifted. And so Ben and Adam, you know, pursued other things. And then um, Logan Lehman's uh, played drums at that point. And then I asked four really talented women, uh, Alyssa Moore on violin, Diana Yoakum on cello, and Sarah Curtin and Maureen Andari on 
backup vocals. A lot of fun, lush uh, vocal arrangements with some strings and more of, of a kind of a basic rhythm section at that point. And that was the musical landscape for Name the Fear, which was the, the last one I put out under the Coward's Choir 2016. We Tell me about the music that helped inspire you to want to be an artist and how you evolved creatively, your sound and mm -hmm. style and all that stuff, because it's, it's an interesting arc. So my mom is a music teacher. She still subs uh, at uh, a Catholic school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. But she taught piano and voice growing up as long as I can remember back. And my dad was a... Uh, a pastor and she she played piano at church and so I just grew up singing with with mom and uh, my dad loved the Beach Boys and um, my mom loved Peter Paul and Mary and Joan Baez and so we just grew up singing and my mom would just teach us these simple folk songs and um, so that's where I learned about melody and harmony was from mom and pretty early on I I fell in love with music I remember after seeing E.T. At that point, we lived in, I think it was Iowa, and I remember being on a, my bike and like singing the E.T. theme song, riding next to a cornfield and just being really escaping through that melody. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really what music has always been for me, just a place to, uh, to, to go. So when I started writing my own songs, when I was probably 12 or 13, I'd taken a little piano from my, from my mom but, you know, right away she could tell that I wasn't really interested in learning music theory and I would make up my own, my own uh, melodies or pick out things that I'd heard and just learn it by ear. So she really encouraged me to do that. And I, and I applied that same method to the guitar when I picked up her classical guitar. So she taught me what she could and I would just hang out with, with other people that knew more than I did, you know, learn from kids that were older than me or people that were around that just knew more about music, knew more about the guitar. And um, my older brother was the one that introduced me to a lot of, um, honestly, man, a lot of the people that you've interviewed. I was listening to the choir interview yesterday, and I remember hearing Sad Face for the first time. And just finally hearing something that I could identify with. And I might have been, I don't know, 12 or 13. I can't remember, but I just remember hearing everything is the musical arrangement, the the vocal delivery, which I believed when I heard him singing. I believed right. what he was singing. The production, the lyricism, just everything. I was gripped by it and excited by that, and I wanted to pursue it. And, you know, that's just one example. Uh, I saw Radiohead at Roseland Dance Hall when I was in high school 
I think it was probably towards the end of the Benz tour. I guess I was probably a junior in high school. I can't remember. Somebody bought a ticket for me because I had bought the cassette, the Benz cassette, and you know it was already worn. It was almost already falling apart because I'd looked at all the lyrics, and I think there, that's a handwritten lyric in there, and some like drawings by I don't know if it was it was Tom York or what, but I love that record. And man, I saw them live, and I was like, "This is it. This is it." Um, David Gray. Not folk music, though. No, but but at the core, like fake, fake plastic trees, um, high and dry. I mean, if you break those down to just an acoustic guitar, that's what they are. You know. They work. Yeah. They also kind of deconstruct different progressions and melodic lines against what the progression is. I hear some of that in what you do. Mm. You kind of seem to have developed a style where. It seems like you're always looking for a way to throw a chord in there mm-hmm. somewhere that's going to take us off the path we're used to, and mm-hmm. you're crafting melodies that are still obviously in the key, but they're mm-hmm. pushing against the conventions a little bit, but in ways that are still very lovely. It's not dissonant. Yeah, so thank I can, you. I can hear how Radiohead and the choir would have both at least been fodder in the brain for that kind of stuff. My my old again, my older brother, he worked at Hershey Park. Um, he got word, and this is before Twitter, kids, this is before, before Twitter. He got word that um, U2 was coming to rehearse before they kicked off the, the Octon Baby Tour at the Meadowlands. He got word they were going to rehearse at Hershey Park Arena. So we drove to the parking lot, you know, with like hundreds of other people, sat in the parking lot, and that's the first, the first notes of Octane Baby I heard were live. It was the edges, he was checking his guitar, and then we heard him play The Fly, even better than The Real Thing, Mysterious Ways, just like pieces of those guitar riffs, checking his tones, you know. Wow. Because so many people showed up in that parking lot, they, they um, did like a benefit concert, or at least discounted tickets, and so we got tickets and I got to see that show, you know, just my older brother and I, and it really did blow my mind just the songs man so i still love that album so much and then discovering who produced it i became so fascinated by and inspired by daniel lenoir so anything that he's done i've tried to find and and absorb you know his book soul mining is i've 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 owned two copies and i think i've I've given both of them away to friends of mine um and uh i always go back to Wrecking Ball is one that I'll go back to if I'm looking for a particular a particular tone or vibe. I'll go back to that record. It's all right, it's all right, all right. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Andy Ziff after this. Hey, this is Ray. And I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I have also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a lot to me, and I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, but please not while you're driving, to leave a rating and review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out to podcast platforms all around the world. 
Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive those numbers up together. Thanks. And now, back to my conversation with Andy Ziff. You've heard all of this stuff in the 90s as you're growing up Mm -hmm. and you decide you're going to be an artist. So those are all the kind of colors that are you're collecting for your crayon box. Yes. At what point did you say, okay, I'm going to actually do this? I I was already writing and demoing songs and I was in high school in my in my parents basement, um, you know, using just a, a, a boom box with two cassette um, players and I did a couple overdubbing like a vocal or another guitar part and I you know show them them to like one or two people one time I showed it to uh, I I took this music theory class I think I was a senior in high school they had this really great Gibson 335 in the closet so he would just let me play it sounds like I know what you're doing tell you what if you play for this play at the end of the semester, you'll get an A in the class and you could just play guitar, you know. And I'll, let me show you a couple never things. have to learn any actual theory. Right, so I didn't. <laughs> um, one time I brought in a song um, that I recorded and uh, I was listening to a lot of uh, Smashing Pumpkins at the time. So it was heavily, heavily influenced, like some of the acoustic songs from Siamese Dream, you know. Um, but he gave me some actually some really good constructive criticism, you know, just really helpful and kind, encouraging feedback. So I had already kind of thought, I wonder if I could pursue music for a career. I don't even think I would have put it in those terms, just something that I really wanted to pursue. So that's why when I visited my, my brother at uh, college and I met these other musicians and found out that you know if I played for the school I'd get a scholarship and you know I decided to do that and then I met the bassist in that band through that school band and at that point it was kind of like a Counting Crows you know yeah it was just kind of like a folk rock thing and uh, when I joined the band it was heavily early U2 influenced you know because I had like meant too many delay pedals to uh to carry and then it sort of evolved into yeah more of more of like an ambient kind of early cold play but like i said the lead singer of that band wanted to didn't want to travel anymore and that was right when i was feeling like you know i i think i want to go out and do and do this on my own so that was about 2002 when i started recording those demos in the basement um of the house I was living at in in Oakton, Virginia, in the D.C. area. And in 2003, that's when Mono vs. Stereo put out that record, I Stole the Morning Sun. And I was still trying to figure out my direction. Um, you know, I had there's a, there are a lot of ideas on, on that 
on that record. It, there are some, you know, kind of more guitar riff based songs, and then there are more some more stripped down. But um, I think I just have always, because I started touring at that at that time, and it was that was predominantly just me and a guitar. You know, I didn't do a lot of traveling with with a band just because, you know, not as economical. So I'd say kind of right away, 18, 19, I wanted to do this. And then I had the opportunity to put that record out in 2003. And I just have never stopped. I think it's the best thing that I have to, to offer. I've worked at it for a long time. Certainly not an easy, an easy <laughs> thing to pursue, right. but it is what I yeah. love. So this album was several years in mm. the making. It took a long time from when you first started thinking about it until now. So walk me through briefly, you know, why all the delays, you know, what what happened and how how the final result compares to what you originally envisioned. So when I moved to Jacksonville, um, it was to take a position as a director of music and artist in residence at a Presbyterian church here. And the pastor I met um, at an Anglican church, my wife and I were attending, we met him in 2010. And in 2016, my son was born and I quickly had the realization I need to provide for my little family in a, in a, in a better way than I am now. And I can't do this seven day a week, 24 hour a day hustle finding gigs and opportunities to pay my rent and the bills. I need to have something more stable. And so I became the part-time director of music at the Anglican church that, that my friend had planted. But he had he had moved uh, in 2014 to, to Jacksonville to become the pastor of this, this Presbyterian church. And so in 2018, a couple years later, he called me. And it was at a point where I really did not know what I... I just didn't know what the next step would be. And when my friend Chuck called and offered me this position, the artist in residence was something I could really understand. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll learn this other part of, the, of this work. So we, we came to Jacksonville in July, in July of 2018, and I had already written what would become, everything is fine, I'm okay, how are you? I'd say probably... Within the first nine months, I wrote the rest of the album, except for the song that I wrote about my dad. And the sanctuary has this beautiful natural reverb. And I wanted to document these songs. And I just thought that's all it will be. It will just be me and my guitar or me and the, and the baby grand piano that they, that they have in the sanctuary. And I borrowed some microphones from a friend in Orlando, he, he shipped me two Neumann U87s, which I could not believe. And he said, just wow. just take care of them, ship them back right. to me when you're done. And, which is perfect, because I could record everything I needed to. And so I would just go in there when no one was around in the evenings or on off days, and I would just gradually build and record these, these songs. 
I only played what I knew I could do well on my own. I, I'm not a great drummer. I can fake you know, playing bass, but I'm not a great bassist, so I didn't do that. I just played guitar and piano, even though I'm not a great pianist, but I could accompany my voice and, and, and play the songs. So that's what I did. And probably late 2018, early 2019, I sent these songs to my buddy Matt Williams in DC, who I'd, I had um, recorded with before. My most listened to song on, on pretty much any platform there's a song called "I'd Sing Hallelujah." Matt, Matt, track that. I'd sing hallelujah if I could recall what it means and just do I am praising. I don't think that I can express it in words, so I let the melody do my speaking. And so was it Matt who then assembled this amazing band that has backed you up on this record? Yeah. So I sent the songs to Matt with the hope that he would mix them and help me put the, re- the record together. And he said, what's your plan with these songs? And I said, you're, you're looking at it. This is, this is it. This is the record. <laughs> and he said, well, hold on a minute. Let me see, you know, with your permission, I'd love to send these songs to some, some people that I've worked with before. I think they would be perfect for this record. Then he told me who they were. And I was like, would they do that? I, you know, and so he sent them to J. Bell Rose, Jennifer Condos. Those were the two at first, and I and I and I would I loved the Raising Sand record, but I didn't actually know it was Jay. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know it was Jay until Matt pointed that out to me, and now I feel ashamed for even admitting that. But <laughs> yes, so right after that, Matt said, "Hey, I'm going to be in in L.A. this summer. Why don't you come and visit?" And so I did. And then when I met Jay and Jen, they were so kind and unpretentious, and they had listened to the songs. There were really specific comments about lyrics and musical sections, and um, they said they'd love to play on the record. I couldn't believe it. And so at that point, it's a matter of figuring out, okay, how do we, how do we fund this? We wanted to do it live. So we had to figure out a way to to fund it and come to LA and, you know, spend about a week. And so I wrote a business proposal. I I made a plan and I ended up applying for a grant with a really gracious nonprofit and um, had a couple conversations and that seemed like that was going to happen. And that was uh, February, 2020. And then March, 2020, (laughs) that all went away. So I remember we were still in the apartment that we were living in. The pandemic had, had just started. We didn't really understand what was happening. And the only space that I could speak without waking my son up was on our this little porch, which honestly is not much bigger than this, the, this area, this desk I'm sitting at. And I remember talking to Matt and just saying, well, I don't know how we're gonna do this. And he was just saying back to me, yeah, I don't know how we're going to do it, but, but somehow we, we will. And so a couple years later, we, we have a complete record. And that's because Jay and Jen decided to track the songs at their house. And then Matt sent the record to Dennis Crouch, and Dennis tracked his parts in Nashville. And then later on, Matt sent the reached out to Tyler Chester, also in L.A., 
and uh, he tracked his his organ and Mellotron parts and piano in, in in L.A. But somehow they were able to transport themselves into the space I was in. I mean, it's a testament to their ability, really. The restraint, man, is yeah. really amazing. Yeah, there's um, I've listened to these songs a few times, and so they all these different layers of what Jay and Jen, Dennis and Tyler have played begin to reveal themselves, you know? Right. So, yeah, restraint is definitely something that they brought to the table, but it's, if it wasn't there, it, the record would not be what it is. It would not be complete. And um, I'm probably more proud of this than anything I've ever done. And it has become so much more than I thought it would be. And the tra- songs have traveled much farther than I thought they ever would. Either dragonfly was wondering about your eyes I just read that if you count them it's 24,000 Bet you can see 360 degrees There's a lot more than I can More than any human They tracked all their parts And this is 2020 August of 2020 And then, um... Uh, one Sunday, I was uh, I was getting in the car with 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 Miriam and Aiden, and I got a call from my brother, who said, um, "Mom found Dad last night. He was unresponsive. Um, they took him to the hospital. You should come home now." And that was all I got. And so I booked the soonest flight I could get from Jacksonville to D.C. And um, my dad had. They found this out later, but he had a slow brain bleed, mm-hmm. um, which caused him that night to become very dizzy. So he went to bed. He wasn't feeling well. And he got up in the middle of the night, we think, and um, he fell and he hit his head. And so that brain bleed became a hematoma and he, he fell asleep and he didn't, he didn't wake up. And so... Um, he was in the hospital, and they waited for all of us to come. I, my three three brothers and and I, and and my mom, and we spent two days with my dad in the hospital, and listened to what the the doctors had to say, and what the prognosis was, and um, he was he was gone. You know, he was gone. I mean, he was, his body was being kept. He was, the machines were, you know, keeping him alive, but it was not, um, you know, looking good. So we needed to say goodbye. So we, we, we sang, um, we sang to him. Yeah. And I sang some of the songs from this record to him too and uh, the last voicemail I got from my dad he uh, he said hey Andy what's going on with the record you know you tell me about the record he knew you know Jay and Jen he knew he knew those names he said, what's going on with Jay and Jen and um, that's the last voicemail I got from my dad the hospital thought Tastes like airport food There's an assortment of juice 
the foot of your bed Mom found your keys In your old blue jeans Left all the floor They were in the right front pocket There's a machine helping you breathe There's another machine with the bus that's annoying We held your hands Told stories and Laughed through our tears Underneath the quiet bed So after the memorial, came home and my mom, you know, said, "Take what you want of your of your father's." And so um, I took uh, this hat he really liked. I took a couple hats and a couple T-shirts, and one of them is this old old black T-shirt with a pocket, and it's it's got bleach stains on the bottom. So it's like something I'll put on. Just around the house, and you know, my my wife will not let me wear it in public, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> so I put it on. I had to mow the lawn because I was gone for a week, you know. And um, I had my dad's hat on, and was and and, and his T-shirt. And uh, on one side of the house is my, you know, is my son's room. He's got a window, and he was he was looking at me with his hands on the with his hands on the window, and. But I'm wearing what my dad. I'm wearing my dad's clothes, you know, and uh, yeah. And so I just that was the last image I needed to 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 to, to like collect all these moments. And I wrote the last song for the record. Um, you won't need your glasses anymore. And that week, I recorded it in the in the sanctuary, and I sent it to Matt, and. I said, I know that everybody's played their parts. I, I don't want to ask too much of, of everyone, but I, I just want to, I would love for the song to be on the record. It feels, I feel like it should be. He said, of course, man. Like, of, of course, this needs to be on the record. This is beautiful. And so I thought that was going to be it. I thought, well, you know, this will just be me and the guitar. And that's okay. And so then a few days later, Matt told me Jane Jen had already played on it. They tracked they oh tracked on it. Wow. And I was so I was so moved by that. You know, that's not they didn't have to do that. What a, what a kind, you know, gracious thing. Um so and you know, I'm sorry that uh sometimes it catches me off guard, you know, they're just still uh 
I just love my dad a lot. Tell me a little bit more about him and um, the kind of person he was. And He was a great listener. He was always interested in, in people. He would sometimes, and I'm ashamed to say this now, but sometimes I would be embarrassed about how engaging he would be with a complete stranger in a diner in off the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, just like, right. Dad, this guy is obviously does not want to talk with you. And then, I, you know, I go go to coffee and come back and they're sitting down and they're having a real interaction, a real, a real authentic. They found some commonality. And so I think that is something I'm trying to do with with my songs. Is I'm trying to find that kind of connection with people. Um, and sometimes the. The way to do that is not to ignore really difficult things, you know, like the feeling of failure, the loss of my father, not ignoring those things. Stained pink with bleach on the bottom him your grandson smile looking on from inside his room was that you We're going to take a little break from my conversation with Andy for just a few minutes and visit the jukebox to listen to an album that we both loved and that was catalyzed by a song about the love between a son and his father. It's hard to believe that it's been over 30 years since you two released what may still be their most fully realized album yet. Octung Baby was not only critical to the ongoing relevance of the Dublin band, it crashed into popular culture like a compact car with no brakes. So, since Andy mentioned that this classic album and tour was a major influence on his writing and development as a musician and performer, let's go ahead and pull it up on the old jukebox and see how good it sounds all these years later. By now, it's a music business legend. 
Having become the biggest band in the world, with the massive success of the Joshua Tree, and fearing that the sweeping sentiments and stadium-sized swagger of Rattle and Hum might lead to some serious bloat if not constrained, the band was ready for a change. As the 80s gave way to the 90s, Bono offered an interesting, confusing even, farewell to the hometown crowd in Dublin that caused no small amount of consternation amongst fans. We've had a lot of fun over the last few months just getting to know the kind of music that we didn't know so much about, still don't know very much about, but it was fun. Thanks for coming along, it uh, wouldn't have been the same without you. Some people have travelled a long way to come here tonight. This, uh, I was explaining to people the other night, but I might have got it a bit wrong. This is just the end of something for, for you too. And, uh, that's why we're playing these concerts, and uh, we're throwing a party for ourselves and you. It's, it's no big deal, just we have to go away and, and just dream it all up again. You two made their unlikely ascent from the alternative fringe of the music world to become the biggest band of the 80s, an era defined by excess, glamour, and the perfection of the corporate pop music formula. In the midst of all this, you 2 dared to point to something higher. With their feet firmly planted in the punk rock spirit of their youth, and their hearts fueled by the fire of redemption, they transcended the miry clay of 80s decadence. They were believers, and it turned out the world was more open to their alt-rock tent services than anyone would have expected. They crafted soaring melodies, but delivered them through a profoundly imperfect voice. It was the sound of Ireland, to be sure, but more along the lines of Irish emigrants, or like Patrick, Bridget, and the other great Irish missionaries of old. They had their ears and their hearts open to the pulse of the world, but their marching orders seemed to come from another realm. The fruit of their labors offered notes of a rock club, the docks of Dublin, an echoey old castle, or, in the case of the Joshua Tree, the wide vistas of the American West. Thus, when they began their process of reinvention, one of the first things they did was to move to a new space. The band and producers set up in the same Berlin recording studio that David Bowie had used for some of his most affecting work. Though all accounts of those early sessions report frustration and tension, eventually causing them to abandon the place altogether, at least two critical things happened while they were in Germany. First, they were present for the fall of the Berlin Wall. Second, Edge started playing a chord progression that would spark the entire process for them. One, with its moody tone, gently confrontational lyric, and stripped-down sound, addressed reconciliation and unity on painfully intimate terms as Bono contemplated his relationship with his father a different kind of wall must come down, one of his own making. Did I disappoint you? 
rest of the songs would crawl into the world through friction and brutal self-reflection, Bono found himself confronting a different kind of injustice, broken love, by digging deep into his own doubts and frailty. Ultimately, every song that survived the band's stringent gauntlet would be a love song of one kind or another, and all of them found resonance on multiple levels. They traded in their stadium swagger and wide-open vistas for brutally cold blasts of industrial noise. If one was the pearl here, they were going to make us dig it out of the mud and shed some blood as we pried that oyster open. I will hopefully never forget where I was the first time I heard this sonic assault. After having dinner with my friend Robert Beeson, then of the band Utanda, the two of us were in my Hyundai Excel. The radio station I had on announced that they were going to play the new U2 album in its entirety with no interruptions. But the opening cut started before we got home, and as the insane, cascading, cryptic sound of Zoo Station filled that little car, we knew we were going to be unable to leave it until the experience was over. So, Robert and I sat in almost complete silence in my tiny car in the parking lot outside of my apartment, allowing this new U2 to shock us. You're dangerous, cause you're honest. You're dangerous, you don't know what you band unveiled Octune Baby in November of 1991. The album was both critically acclaimed and eventually adored by fans. 
It took us a while to adjust to Bono's new, less literal style of lyric writing, and some of the sonic flourishes sounded very foreign. But at its core, this was seminal U2. The album brought the band's spiritual explorations into very personal places. Octung Baby is one of those rare albums that was simultaneously adventurous, artistic, and soulful, and also massively successful on a commercial level. In the 30 years since its release, many have come to regard it as one of the best alternative rock albums ever produced, and one as one of the greatest pop songs of all time. The subsequent Zoo TV tours replaced their Spartan stage sets with a multimedia overload that presciently satirized our growing idolization of media, pop stars, and propaganda. They even managed to predict the strangely confessional narcissism of the coming social media age by inviting concert goers to step into a video confession booth to share their deepest feelings so that those feelings could be used as props on the massive stage. But beneath it all, it was ultimately all about the subversive power of love. Love is For all of its artistic successes, the Octung Baby Zoo TV era may have seen the band lose their way a bit as well. Did they end up becoming the very kind of glittery plastic distraction they had worked so hard to parody? Did Bono surrender to his alter egos a bit? Possibly. They would eventually reset again, back to their more earnest roots with the release of All That You Can't Leave Behind in 2000. I decided to call my good friend Nick Beret to see what he thought of Octune Baby then and now. Nick manages artists, including Chagall Guevara, and has been active in the industry for as long as I have. So let's head into the virtual True Tunes interview suite for a quick touch base with someone who's just about as big a YouTube fan as I am. The men who love you, you hate the most. They pass right through you like a ghost. They're Tell me, first of all, what do you remember where you were when you first heard Octane Baby? I, I can tell you literally every single album uh, from War on where I was. I had the lyrics out. I mean, it's like I'm opening an epistle uh, and I'm somewhere in Greece <laughs> or some, somewhere in Rome. So, yeah, I, w- I was in Nashville, Tennessee. I had been here for, for less than a year and... Uh, Rather than buying it at the cool record store, I actually ran into a mall after work to get it and um, was alone in my bedroom with the lyrics, door shut, just ready to experience it. And uh, like everybody else was uh, 
you know, fr from the cover collage of cross process anti-carbon photographs to the track one broken speaker fade a uh, fake out of, of zoo station. I mean, like everyone else, I think we knew that the band wasn't dialing it in. They were taking a risk. They were taking a leap of faith. This would either be a classic record or pretty significant creative misfire. <laughs> right. Yeah, it does. It does feel right at the very beginning. They, I, I remember reading somewhere that Adam Clayton said they were intentionally trying to make it sound like either you had made a mistake and this was not you two or something was wrong with your stereo system. <laughs> like, like you had exactly. actually blown a yeah. speaker or something like that. Well, and, and Bono famously said uh, after the release, he, he described Octoon Baby as uh, the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree. Oh, and yeah, right. and for particularly the younger listeners, um, the like to understand Octoon Baby fully, you really need to know the context of it. Uh, throughout the 80s, U2 was at such an incredible, they were so incredibly consistent in their creative output, but but like so many things in life a strength can quickly mutate into a weakness and by 1988's rattle and hum the band's consistency kind of made them vulnerable to being predictable and cliche right. so there was just a lot of curiosity i, I don't think anyone was, was expecting joshua tree part two you know again it was just that element of surprise that that made listening to that record uh, it, there was excitement but there was also a little fear and trepidation right. of where my favorite band was going and where were they and, taking me and it's a defining moment a defining challenge that any successful artist has to face whether it's forgive these references but the beatles leaving the the safe haven of the world domination as a, a boy band or dylan going electric miles davis annihilating the boundaries of jazz springsteen choosing to release his demos for the nebraska album right right, it's a, right. Paul Simon, Sting, Charlie Peacock, or Terry Taylor doing whatever the heck they want. Every artist reaches that point where they have to push themselves, they have to risk, or they become stagnant or caricature themselves. There have been plenty of shocking, surprising albums over the years. How does this one sit with you listening back to it? 30 years removed from the release of Octoon Baby, I see a lot of parallels from the biggest band in the world locking themselves in Hansa Studios in Berlin, rebuilding everything that they've made, that made them successful from the ground up. I see a lot of comparisons to that in the current deconstruction movement happening right. in the church today. Yeah. And, and I've always viewed Octune Baby in that context. U2 wasn't trying to avoid being who they really w were. To the contrary, they were searching for who they had become as artists and as people, and they were trying to be as honest, truthful, and real 
as they could. And, and underneath the veneer of the visuals of, of the album, the tour and the sounds, I, I believe they created their most spiritual album to date. I would agree. And I personally resonate with that. The idea that we become enchanted by things that we never should have given our hearts over to. And then we have to become disenchanted by those things and then re-enchanted. But sometimes you can become enchanted by or entranced by scale and bigness and even earnestness and (laughs) these these things that are good in and of themselves. And then the more I could get over some of the sonic stuff into the lyric and think about the lyric, then the sonic stuff actually goes from being an obstacle to putting me in a sense of place. You know, like I felt like it, it surrounded me and it actually made some sense. The revisionist history of this album is there's a lot of people that forget how uh, the initial reaction, the first few weeks in particular, a lot of my YouTube friends despised this record. It had to grow on people. It had right. to stick to their bones a bit because it wasn't, they wanted the U2 that they experienced in their dorm room at college or in high school. They didn't, you know, they wanted that group. And, you know, when you're the biggest band in the world, your life changes, your world gets bigger. And uh, I I just love the fact that music, that we can have these kind of conversations where it's so much more than just an album. It's a parallel to our, our lives and, yeah. the world and all of that. The most important stuff is often the most difficult at first, at least, you know, and, right. and especially when it comes to art, like if it was just easy and comfortable, then it just becomes kind of decoration. It's the stuff you got to work for right. that I, that has stuck with me. Is there a, is there a song on this project that when you first think of Octune baby, there's a song that pops out to my, is like defining for you or. I think for me personally, uh, the defining song of, of the album is the, the lead single, uh, The Fly. You know, rumors are that Brian Eno was very influential in the, the lyrics of that. Interesting. Um, and particularly the lyric for me, which I think they're writing to themselves, and particularly the Joshua Tree versions of, of themselves, is um, every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief, all kill their inspiration and sing about the grief. I felt like that was, that there was probably some good self-awareness going on (laughs) when that lyric was written. The song that shocked me the most was trying to throw your arms around the world. Uh, Just because it was you two laid back. It was just so, I can't fathom that song fitting on anything else they'd ever done to that point. Six o'clock in the morning You're the last to hear the warning You've been trying to throw your arms For me, until the end of the world has always struck. And I remember, you know, listening to it, studying it, trying to figure out what is he actually saying. And then someone telling me, this is about Judas, you know, and that was like a little bit of a Rosetta Stone to then say, well, where is the Judas in me? 
and what am I, where is the end of the world? What is the world? Like it just opened up all these moments of contemplation and consideration that, that I thought, wow, you know, instead of Judas just being this two-dimensional villain, what if we start to think about Judas just having diehard faith that's just slightly off the goal of love? Man, that, that song still sticks with me. In an age when we have instant data on the number of streams that happened yesterday and likes and views and all of that, I think the band would be a greatest hits band had they not had Octoon Baby. I feel like it's the most significant moment in their career that meant that they could have a second act, a third act, a fourth act, you know, who knows what they'll have going forward. Along those lines, that reminds me that as much as they needed to reinvent themselves and and tweak the formula or whatever you want to call it they had earned the right to do that like they <laughs> yeah. they had spent time we were we were believers you know we were <laughs> the, the, the fans were yeah. just in and that gives you the ability to to experiment and to risk that's why it's it's rare because it's really hard to get that balance right between something that's accessible but not cheesy some cultivating a relationship with fans where they care and then right when you get them there being willing to say hey guys trust me we're going to walk on water a little bit here and it's going to be scary you know so um that's really cool well thanks for taking some time with this was four years of my college experience where these types of discussions (laughs) arguments debates you know thank you for using your gifts geekdom for the forces of good (laughs) thank you for everything that true tunes has done Thank you for the friendship too. You make me, you're one of those few people who make me feel less weird. So thank you. <laughs> Cause you can compare yourself to me. And yeah, I know. That I... Bad. <laughs> well, thanks man. All right. When we come back, I ask Andy about some of my favorite songs on how to make a paper airplane. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast and I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig like The Call and Bruce Coburn and discover new artists like Vanishing Shores and Natalie Bergman. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts, and from across a wide range of genres including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. 
You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. Okay, back to my conversation with fellow YouTube fan Andy Ziff. This album, How to Make a Paper Airplane, is just loaded with songs. I I mean, if I had to cut a song, I don't know what I would cut. So I wanted to ask you about a few of them and um, just have you give us some context here. The first song, everything is fine. I'm okay. How are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the, you know, what inspired this, and then what made it you so confident that this was going to help set the tone for this whole album. Yeah. So this is the the first song that I wrote for the record before I even knew I was I was writing for a record. And you ever get a text from a friend? They ask you how you're doing. You say I'm I'm good, but you don't really you don't really get into what's happening in your in your head. That was where the idea for that song started, that you don't really say what we mean, or I should say, I'll speak for myself, I won't put this on everybody else, that I do not usually say. I don't know what the reason is, I just, I don't wanna be vulnerable in that moment. That's where that started, that idea. And, and at that time, my son was just born, I was you know having to take this job, and something that I'd been pursuing since I was 18, was starting to really shift. So the last verse of that song, I better find some contentment in the ordinary rhythms. I mean, that's that's what I was telling myself, like, get yourself together, you know. Initially, you know, that was a guitar song. But when I came to Jacksonville and had access to that beautiful baby grand piano in the sanctuary of the church, I played that song and realized, hold on a second, this is a great piano song, because I can play B-flat. You know, B flat, E flat, you know, I can, you know, I can do a, you know, kind of a Harry Nilsson ripoff. So that's where that song came from. And um, when Matt heard it, the way he orchestrated, he had a vision from my vision. He knew where to take it. Father, you're making scrambled eggs in the corner. 
You have a way of focusing on these details, these tiny little details, and then you can drill into these things, like the sound that the medical machinery is making, mm. or the drip of bleach on the t-shirt, mm. or um, the sound of rain. Yeah, you know, like I, I like the way that you you identify one specific thing, you describe it efficiently, but really evocatively, and then it turns out that those specific little things are what helps the song become so universal. Was that something that just sort of instinctively happened, or how do you think that evolved for you? The writers that I love, that is a trait that they have. Whether it's Paul Simon or Bruce Springsteen or even Tom Petty, there's these little details in his songs as well. And so that was something that I had to work on because at first I'm just mirroring my heroes you know, when I'm inspired by it. And, and eventually I realized that I need to be speaking about specific things in, in my life and around me. You know, the way my right shoe, the tip is coming off. These, these are all birds. Great, great shoes, by the way. I have flat feet. I don't have to wear orthotics. Are they the ones you got at Nordstrom Rack? Different shoes, different shoes. <laughs> because you bought higher quality shoes. I did. You were able to put new soles on them twice. And that little detail i just was like oh my gosh i love that yeah that's so i those I, those boots are in my closet i don't know these little details you know these are things that i that i see and yeah specificity using your own story telling your own story these things are really important to me and what else do we have man you have a song called it's hard to pray anymore mm -hmm. and if this was a seven inch single the mm -hmm. flip side would be god coughed and woke me up yes and yeah. I love the juxtaposition mm -hmm. of this doubt, mm -hmm. almost despair, mm -hmm. with an answer, but the answer leads to some implications that are mm -hmm. kind of surprising, at mm -hmm. least to some people. So mm -hmm. how did that come together? It's hard to pray anymore. I played my classical guitar. I had picked that up after I directed the choir for Easter, I was, which I'm not a choir director, but... My grandpa was, and I, you know, I FaceTimed my mom, and she t called me a couple things, and that's what I was doing. And we were we were rehearsing a song for for Easter, which happened to be an A flat. And I started playing and singing, and um, we coming to coming to Jacksonville was something that we that we definitely needed to do. But we are were away from family, friends some people that i love we were going through some anxiety and depression and that's what i sang about that's what i felt that day and have other days it was a cathartic thing to sing that in a sanctuary I 
church community that you're a part of pretty tolerant of its church music director expressing such doubt? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. I don't know, John. I I think um, I think that they that they will be. I ask that because I have encountered artists where it seems like some of my friends who are more in the church music community, not only have they not felt comfortable articulating it in their art, some of them don't even feel comfortable admitting to themselves that mm-hmm. they're experiencing that kind of lack of faith or doubt. Um, so I really, uh, knowing that you were working and doing music at a church and you're able to be that honest, I, I was encouraged because th- that song I can completely relate to. Mm-hmm. So if you think of... Uh Psalm 13, the first four verses of that song in particular, that's, it's hard to pray anymore. That's, that's that, that emotion. And God coughed and woke me up. That one is about coming to Florida and seeing the trees are different here. You know, live oaks with, with, with Spanish, Spanish moss and we're 25 minutes from the Atlantic Ocean and, you know. I love that you both have it be that this comes to you in the middle of the night and wakes mm-hmm. you up. And so we can we can ponder mm-hmm. the psychological or spiritual ramifications of that. But that having heard something mm. that you interpret as being from God, mm-hmm. there are implications to that. I'm trying to become more mindful of that, mm-hmm. that if I want to hear God, I better actually listen. Yeah, I think that I had the idea, oh, what would I... Here's a song about God. He told me one time. <laughs> I love the for opening line. Too. Yeah, <laughs> so here's a song about God. He told me one time, out of a dream, speaking my language, not in the tongues of angels. Yeah, I just I'm trying to tell stories well. My hope is that when people listen to this album, they're going to hear some of their own story in it too. Here's a song about God told me one time when I was trying to sleep he coughed and woke me up out of a dream speaking my language not in the tongues of angels said the Lord I am divine mystery so let it be we'll go with he the sake of the story, solely Deo Gloria. You're doing all right, he said to tell you, but control is an illusion, it's wrecking your head. Take a breath, be still. Look at that crazy bug over there Beware the emperor's church There's children in cages I'm weeping Old Testament tears For years They've been building walls That are showing my How to Make a Paper Airplane becomes the title of the album. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful song. I mean, it feels like a kid's song. Mm-hmm. That song really hit me as a dad whose kids are now grown. We have one still at home and he's on his way. <laughs> but that hit me emotionally really hard oh. when I heard that was like, 
oh, I've, I've been through this and he's got it coming for him. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming down the road for you. But so tell me about uh, Airplanes and how that becomes the title and the, the defining song of this set. We were still in the apartment that we first moved to coming to Jacksonville in. My son's probably three years old, maybe three and a half. And so you do arts and crafts, you know? Yeah. So I made a paper airplane for him, and that was the first time. And he thought it was magic, you know? Yeah. So fun. And I just said, remember this. I have a voicemail of this when I, when I came up with this idea, and it's really short. So this is January 2nd, 2019. So that's where that song came from. And my son will understand Daddy's song about the paper airplane. But there's another layer to it. And I wrote this before my dad died. So now the last verse has a different meaning to me. When your hands are bigger than your hands now, try again. Teach somebody how to make a folded paper airplane. Um, so instead of me thinking about myself, I'm thinking about my dad. So that was a, a really special one. And that was when I knew I was writing a record at that point. This is, this is gonna be a record. To me, the, the fact that our kids are like art, that mm. we get to somehow magically be a part of them coming into the world and then we shape them, we fold them, you know, for better and worse. <laughs> you know, and so your your father invested mm. in you and you took off and now here you are doing the same thing mm. and you're you are also folding and shaping your son mm. and preparing him. And sometimes it's gonna nosedive and sometimes it's gonna flood around mm -hmm. and sometimes it's gonna go pretty far. You know, I just love it. I think it's it's great. I hope a million people get to hear it. Oh that man, song. thank you. car door alarm the line that it closes with quiet mm -hmm. your mind with music mm -hmm. is something i definitely do tell me yeah. about you know what you were thinking when this song came together it was the winter after we moved to jacksonville my wife was getting the mail my son sitting behind us in the car seat and it was raining she had the door open didn't close it i i and so i just recorded a 10 second you know voice voicemail memo and I, th I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what tempo this is and what key this is in. It's almost like an account of what was happening in the first verse. You left the car door open and the rain came in pitter-pat on the rubber mat, you know. Almost like a Dr. Seuss story or something. And 
I just got lost in that in that piano part. I just really it was very soothing to me. There's a line you were getting the mail. I was thinking about Christmas. We should get ourselves something this year. And if we forget, I know we'll forgive us. You know, my wife and I, we don't give each other a, a big extravagant gifts, but we, when we do give, give gifts, they mean a lot. And um, matter of fact, today, I got a text from my wife today, and she, I have these, these sunglasses that have been sat on and torn up and so she's been telling me, why don't you get yourself some new sunglasses? And I'm like, eh, they're fine. They work. So she, she got me some sunglasses. And that's, those are the kind of gifts that we, that we give to each other. You know, something that we, that we need and that we're going to use. But every once in a while, I do like to, like I say in the song, buy her, buy her something she doesn't need, you know, that, we, that she wasn't expecting. And Miriam and I have been married for now almost 19 years. She has experienced every disappointment and every mm-hmm. hope, and some of that has has been achieved, and some of that has has disappeared. And I'm speaking to her. I'm speaking yeah. to my wife in this song. You know, um, the very last line, "Quiet your mind with music," and that is something that I do too. I, I find comfort in in recognizing pieces of, of beauty or things that are just not finding comfort in but just recognizing there are awful and disturbing things in this world and to recognize them for what they are but not to ignore them especially now becoming a father and having to explain a little bit of that sorrow to my son you know when my dad died he had probably just turned four so his memories of my father will be very faint he can't comprehend where Papa went, you know. And he he said one time at the breakfast table because I do the I got the morning routine, so so Miriam can get a break and I'll make the coffee and get the bag of Cheerios and turn on Wildcrats or whatever it is. And um, he said, "When is Papa be, gonna be alive again?" Mm. What do you What do you say? No, right. I'm sorry, mm. buddy. Papa, you know, Papa will not be alive again. You know, Papa's in heaven. So, rather than ignoring a moment like that, I take that in, and I want to, I want to, I want to express that in a song. All of these songs came from moments like that. I left the car door open, and the rain fell in.
Every significant moment, whether it's celebratory or wh whether it is a deeply mournful moment, there is music. And it can speak things that words cannot. And a melody is a message. I mean, Finlandia, Sibelius, that's a message. That is pure, beautiful, sorrowful emotion. Before a lyric is set to yeah, that melody. Before, before Be no... Still My Soul is ever set to that me uh, melody. You know, what is it good for? I just think that life is so much more meaningful that we have it. I am grateful every day that I can, that I can make music. That I can put all of my grief from losing my dad into, into a song. And it feels like I am weeping. But I'm also remembering my dad mm -hmm. and I can write a song about my son and a paper airplane or seeing a dragonfly for the first time. It takes me a long time to say things sometimes so it's better if I can I think sometimes I can express a complete thought in three three or three and a half minutes you know. It is a holy thing in whatever context I think it is a holy thing to experience music to make music. I hope to always be able to do it I feel like I have a lot more in me to share and I feel like this album is the beginning of another life as a creative person. I couldn't imagine going through life without being able to listen to other people share their stories through music, to listen to an album like Goodbye to Language by Daniel Lenoir where I'm like, I don't know what's happening right now, but I am lost in this. I got to see him. I got to see Black Dub with my wife at, and at the 930 Club. Man, just transcendent, man. That's that's one of her favorite shows. That and um, when, when we got to see Radiohead in Rainbows and it was raining, you know, and we're freezing cold and we wore trash bags on our shoes so we wouldn't get wet, but we still got soaking wet and muddy, but we stayed the whole time, freezing cold and shaking. Why do we stay the whole set? It's because the music was so beautiful and powerful, you know? Right. And sometimes I like, I like the Tom Petty philosophy, man. Don't try to understand it. Just enjoy it and just, just feel it. And I don't know, I could go on and on with, with, with answering here without really answering. I just love it so much. That's why I've spent my life pursuing it. Rest easy, child. Quiet your mind with music da, 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 da. Quiet your mind with 
Thanks for joining us today, Andy. And if you'd like to hear more of his music, join his email list, back his Patreon program, or follow him on the socials, visit thecowardschoir.com. We'll also add a link on the show notes page. As I climb up on my soapbox for just a couple of minutes here, and with these conversations still ringing in my ears, I am thinking about the importance of a sense of place. Where do our feet stand? What do our eyes see? What does the room we are in smell or sound like? This kind of awareness is important because I'm certain that where we are has a direct effect on how we hear others and how we sound to others. When we fail to stay connected to our place, our music and words become disembodied, ungrounded, and increasingly hollow. Although Octung Baby clearly reflected the European club sound and placed the band squarely in Berlin at the time of the falling of that wall, it is even more fully anchored in the liminal space between humanity and technology and the darker corridors of the human heart. Even the body characters Bono crafted, the fly, the mirror man, and the devilish Mephisto could never fully obfuscate the truthful core of the work. Andy Ziff's project, though it features contributions by amazing musicians around the country, maintains a strong sense of place as Andy draws careful attention to tiny details to which most of us can relate. And then there's a more spiritual aspect of place that we do well to remember. Where are we standing emotionally? How is the world around us enchanting our eyes? How might the swirling sounds around us be amplifying some voices and muting others? What has our attention, conscious or not? Are we aware of our frailty, our ghost-like natures, or have we so thoroughly assimilated into the machinery that we have lost track of ourselves and our hearts? God, through the prophet Jeremiah, asks, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth? If we really believe that the Spirit of God is everywhere, then that Spirit should be found on our personal mountaintops and also in the valleys, the sunny places, and the darkened corners. Sometimes art can recalibrate my sense of presence or help me empathize with someone else's. Places shape perspective, after all, and perspective frames our understanding. So, being aware of my place, where I am, and what I can see and cannot see from here, and recognizing the obstacles in my path can make all the difference. Okay, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. That is going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a minute to tell your friends and family about the show. Don't forget to sign up on the email list and find us on Facebook at True Tunes Now. Be sure to check out True Tunes at 45 RPM for bonus coverage of Andy Zip's single, Did You Know I Was a Ghost? I also want to thank my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown, for his incredible service to us all. And thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. You'll find a complete list of all of the songs used on this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to stay tuned and stay true. Peace. I'm terrified 
of you, John, because you're one of the very, very few people who can match my music geekdom. I think if it was a cage match of Christian alternative trivia or Jeopardy, it would be me, you, Bruce Brown, Greg Bays, Chris Hauser, uh, Brian Quincy Newcomb. You know, there's there we, we would be the elite, you know, the final people in the battle royale. <laughs> yeah, so I my life as a music geek is now completely fulfilled in this moment. <laughs> <laughs>